Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So we're talking about coming home, coming on home, and the fact that salvation, part of the aspects of salvation, when we think about what it means for our lives today, it's this sense of joining God's family and being welcomed home into his family. And this morning, as we unpack this even further, we've looked at forgiveness and we've looked at reconciliation and how do we overcome the barriers that keep us from joining God's family. We want to talk a little bit about what happens when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and we become members of his family. And there's a verse I need to show you because it's one of those sentences from the Bible that just kind of summarizes one of the major lessons of the entire scripture. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Would you read this with me, please? Uh, one of the guys in the back in the tech booth says, boy, you're really hitting them, hitting them hard right off the bat. And I, and I acknowledge that, but let's read this together. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. This verse is so important because it reminds us that there's a, an eternal destiny for every person. If we choose to live a life under the control of sin, we choose to live in rebellion against God, we'll get paid for that. And the wages that we receive is death, not just physical death, but death in a sense of being separated from God forever. All people who are physically alive today, who are not members of God's family, who've never trusted Jesus Christ, they are spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead until I put my trust in Jesus Christ as a teenager. And that's a spiritual death, a separation from God. But this verse, and, and the thing is, is if you die that way, if you die physically without ever putting your trust in Jesus Christ, then you will be separated from him for all eternity. You'll be cut off from him. But this sentence says it doesn't have to stay that way. This verse reminds us that there's a great hope. And it says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We get paid, we deserve to get death if we're sinners and choose to live in that sin and refuse to come to Christ and be forgiven. But if we do put our trust in Christ, and that's explained in other passages in Scripture, if we do put our trust in Christ, then we receive a gift. Not something we deserve, not something that we've earned, not anything that we've merited in any way, but God gives a gift. And the gift that he gives us freely is eternal life. And it's made available to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the, what I want to focus on is what is eternal life? What is eternal life? And we're actually going to take two messages to talk about eternal life. Because when someone puts their trust in Jesus Christ, they are made alive. They are no longer spiritually dead and cut off from God. They're born again. They become spiritually and emotionally and physically and supernaturally they become alive they are brand new people the bible uses the word regeneration to talk about it the bible uses the word resurrection to talk about what happens to us when we put our trust in christ we are made alive with him but the thing is is that this idea of eternal life has 
a dimension where we understand it as something that is quality and something that is quantity. Can we compare those two words? A quality and a quantity. Quantity is kind of obvious because it's eternal life. It's something that lasts forever. It's our future. It's our home. It's heaven. We talk about that. We just sang about that very joyfully. It's heaven. And we're excited about that. And we think about our future. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. But in a week or two, we're going to be looking at the quality aspect of the fact that we're actually sharing God's life. We're sharing his life now, here on earth, and in the future for all eternity as well. We share his life, his peace, his joy, his happiness, his love, his, his power. All of that we share because we receive his life. It's a life without regret. So it's a life that fully satisfies. Jesus called it the abundant, overflowing life. So we're actually going to take two messages to look at both aspects of this eternal life because it's such a rich and powerful and wonderful concept that we need to understand as well. But today, we want to focus on the fact that when you and I put our trust in Christ and begin following him, he promises to take us home. In fact, the truth is Jesus one day is going to come and take his people home. He's going to bring them home. And they're going to be with him and with the Father in heaven, with the Holy Spirit and all the people of God, the family of God. They're going to be with him at home forever. And this idea of going home is very powerful. It's very meaningful to us. I mean, we're a very mobile culture. I have friends who have been in the service, career military people, others who have been missionaries, others who have just endured a lot of transfers with their workplace, and they've lived in many different locations, and they don't have roots anywhere because they've been so mobile, so transient. Uh, some communities that are near military bases or others near university towns, they understand, the, the pastors there understand that the people will be at their church maybe only for a year or two or three, and, and then they move on somewhere else because they've taken a, a position at another uh, job or another uh, military base or another university. And there are these transfers, and there's a very, we're a very transient society. We, we grieve over people that we see in our cities that are homeless, we're brokenhearted over children, even here in Littlestown, that are living in cars or, or living in a house that's not there, sleeping on somebody else's couch because they don't have a home. And that's true even in a small country town like this, in this community. We're brokenhearted for them because we recognize the value and joy of having a place of safety, of refuge, of peace, of security, a place to belong that's called home. If your children live far away from home and your grandchildren live far away from home, and some of us here as grandparents, it's a bittersweet thing. You know, we, we love them and we're excited to be grandparents, but we grieve because they're so far away from home and we hardly get to see them. And others of us have our grandchildren around so much that we're saying, oh, you can take them back home now. And we go through those kinds of experiences as well. But there's just something about belonging and being connected and wanting to be together. When the holidays come, everybody, because we have five children, they'll ask, are your kids coming home? 
And I'm kind of saying, yes, but you don't know what it's like when everybody's packed in that house. It was crowded when there were five kids there, and now there are three spouses and seven grandkids. <sighs> yeah, we're packed. We're starting to think about buying a motel. We really wonder if we need to do that, or at least tents in the backyard. I'm not sure what. There's something about wanting to come home. Norman Rockwell captured this tremendously during World War II with these illustrations for the Saturday Evening Post. This is one of my favorite illustrations by him. The young soldier has come home on leave and everybody is so excited to, to see him. Mom is there leaning over the railing. The brothers and younger brothers and sisters come running out. Dad's pulled his pipe out and he's so surprised. The neighbors are looking on with joy and there's the girlfriend around the corner just kind of wanting if she's going to have some time with him by herself because there's a sense of he's come home. Our family's complete. This next picture that Rockwell painted is, one of my, is, is even more delightful to me, of mom just looking at the son in his uniform, peeling potatoes, getting ready for Thanksgiving, and she's just looking at him with that twinkle in her eye, listening to him tell his stories and hearing of his love and just the delight of being home, and what a joy. And I tell you, these two pictures nearly bring tears to our eyes, a lump in our throat when we think about the potential and joy of coming home. And that's part of the message of the idea of eternal life, is that we get to go home, that we get to be with our heavenly Father in his house, with his love and his family for all eternity, never to be leaving it, never to be kicked out, never to be excluded, but to always belong if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, to be forever home. It's important to understand that eternal life is a status and a state. It's a, it's a thing to recognize that we have this life, this new life power in us, God's life. But it's also a place. It's a place. And it's a place where we belong. And we need to remember that. And that's what we, we will be focusing on today as well. And so when we talk about forever home, this idea of coming on home, that we can be forever home, it's because Jesus is going to bring his children home. He's going to bring his people home, never to leave him and never to be forsaken by him, but to always belong to him for all eternity, forever home. I want to share with you a passage of scripture that is very familiar. Uh, if you've gone to any funerals that I lead and preach at, half the time you probably hear me use this passage in the service and maybe even preach from it. If you've gone to other church services where there's a funeral, a memorial service, this passage is often referenced. Uh, it's a familiar passage. It's John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. But the thing that's so important about this passage is that it's not just talking about our future, but it's talking about a truth that's so powerful, a hope that's so wonderful that it can actually transform our lives today. And it conveys the truth that Jesus is promising you and me that he's going to come and take his children home, never to be left alone, but always to belong with him forever. And so John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, listen to this. And I remind you that as we look at this passage, just let me set the context for this just a moment. Okay, before we start reading. Jesus is in the upper room. This is the Last Supper. 
This is part of the dinnertime conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples as they're eating the lamb and sharing the bitter herbs and sharing that Passover meal together. It's his last meal with them. In just a few hours, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and he's going to be arrested and hauled off before Pontius Pilate and Herod and others. And he's going to undergo several trials and be whipped and beaten and mocked. And he's ultimately the next morning going to be crucified on a cross to die for our sins. And he has told his disciples that this is about to happen to him. And on top of that, he said to them, somebody at this dinner table is going to betray me. And on top of that, another one at this table is going to deny me. How's that for a nice, cheery Thanksgiving dinner conversation? You thought politics was bad, but imagine having a conversation like that around the dinner table with your most beloved friend and your teacher telling you those things. And that's what Jesus has done. And so you can just imagine the 12 men sitting around the table with Jesus as they're eating there and thinking about what he said, that he's going to die, that he's going to suffer these things, that one of them is going to betray him and one of them is going to deny them. And they're thinking, well, if, if, if Peter's going to deny Jesus, then what am I going to do? And if, if another one, and Judas, we just saw him leave, if he's going to betray Jesus, what am I going to do? They're questioning their loyalty, they're grieving, they're brokenhearted because there's this, this cloud of gloom has just descended upon this, what's supposed to be a festive remembrance of God's deliverance. And Jesus has said, no, I'm about to die, and you're brokenhearted over that. And that's why he says these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Would you read verse 6 with me, please? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. Now, in this passage, Jesus is telling us that he's going to come and take his people home. This is a promise that he's giving to them. And he, he says this starting right off in verse 1. He says, look, I know your hearts are disturbed. I know your hearts are agitated. That word of your heart being troubled, that, that inner part of you where you make your decisions and have your feelings and emotions, your will, your consciousness, it's all there, your heart. I know that that is, that is shaking like an earthquake. It's, it's stirred up. It's agitated like wind blowing on the water and, and just stirring it all up. Your hearts are like that. Jesus even had that experience himself when it says that his heart was deeply troubled when he stood before the grave of his dear friend Lazarus and prayed for him to be resurrected and called him forth from the grave. But in that moment, Jesus was going through the anxiety and the stress and the turmoil and his heart was greatly disturbed. And he says, don't let, stop letting your heart be disturbed in that way that you can control how your heart feels and what you're thinking on the inside we can control our thinking we can control our feelings we can do that it's work it's hard we can bring our thoughts captive and Jesus is saying he's giving a command here stop letting your hearts be troubled in this way and the antidote for that 
turmoil and the disruption in your heart is to believe. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He may be making a statement instead of a command, you know, you are believing in God. But it's very clear that the second thing that he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Start believing in me. Keep on believing in me. Keep on trusting in me. And he explains that this is the key to having a calm, quiet, serene heart. A peace-filled heart comes from trusting in Christ no matter what kind of grief, no matter what kind of sorrow, no matter what kind of disruption that we have. To keep on believing in Christ. Keep on trusting and relying on Him. And when he says believe, it's important that we remember what the Scripture teaches about belief. And this is a very simple explanation, but I think it's helpful. It's helped many people. Belief is more than just knowing about something. There are a lot of people who say, I know about God, I know about Jesus, and I believe. And all they're really saying is, I know he's there. I know he lived. I know he was a historical figure. I've heard people talk about him. So they're saying, I know about him. But that's not what the belief is that it will calm your troubled heart. It's more than that. It's, it's accepting that that thing that you know about is true you're willing to say it's real, it's authentic. But it's even more than just knowing it's real and authentic. It's, it's coming to the place where you actually rely upon it and depend upon it, that you accept that it's true. I read recently about when they first made elevators, people were afraid to try them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that you know, the door would open in the wall of a building and instead of climbing the stairs under your own power, you were supposed to step inside this little tiny room and they cranked the door shut and you were supposed to stand there and it would carry you up and what if the cables broke and what if the motor died and what if you got stuck between the rooms and what if the doors didn't open? Can you imagine how much faith it took for people to get on those first elevators? And we just do it and don't even think about it hardly. You can say it's there. You can read the architectural plans. You can see the engineering specs. You can even inspect the motor. You can know all that. But until you go through the doorway and you stand in the car and you let the door shut and you push the button and wait for it to carry you up or carry you down to where you're supposed to go, you really don't have faith, do you? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. You, you trust in God. You believe in God. You know about God. You accept him as true. You're following him. Well, believe in me, trust me, rely on me, depend on me. And you show that by following me and doing what I say. You have a faith in me that results in a faithfulness to me. If you have that kind of faith, he says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious about the future. You don't have to be brokenhearted in the face of adversity and turmoil and problems. And these disciples had great turmoil and problems. The thing I find so ironic is Jesus is about the one to be beaten and die. He's the one that's about to be killed. And they're not comforting him. He's trying to comfort them. He's trying to help them. You believe in God, he says, keep on believing in me. Keep on trusting me. Now, what is it that we're supposed to trust him for? Well, this is what he's trying to explain. And you might be thinking, well, what good is it? The disciples are probably thinking, what good is it that we believe in you, Jesus? You just said you're about to die, and we're going to betray you and deny you. (laughs) 
So what's so good about that? Why would we trust you? And he unpacks, this is what I want you to trust me for, at least in this area at this time. And it's a reminder for us as well. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. And some of you, when you were reading this today, you were a little surprised because you memorized it like I did from the King James Version. In my father's house are many, and what's that next word in the King James? In my father's house are many mansions. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And you know, we say all that kind of, sing those songs and, and say all those kinds of things. And you know what? The word that Jesus uses there in the original language doesn't mean mansion. In fact, in 1611, when they translated the King James Bible, the word mansion meant just simply a humble dwelling, not a rich man's castle or fortress, okay? It was the idea of a simple, modest dwelling, a humble dwelling. And, and all he's trying to say here is in my father's house, there are many rooms. There's room enough for you. There's room enough for me. My father's house is a big, big house, and there's plenty of room for all of us who follow Jesus to be there. The picture that Jesus is using as he's talking about this with his disciples, and they would kind of remember this and imagine this, is that, you know, yes, they, as poor fishermen and tax collectors and things like that, they might not be from, you know, have big, expensive, large dwellings themselves, but they would see the ones that the rich Romans and the rich rulers and the rich, uh, important, powerful people in their Jewish and Roman society, they would see these big villas, these big homes that wealthy men would build. And then they would see a construction project going on where a, a son would go off and he'd get married. And instead of building his own house, his own villa somewhere, he would build an addition onto his father's house. And they would build this addition, and so he would bring his family in. And it was this one big compound, this big extended family. And there would be a, a courtyard often in the center. And maybe there would be a fountain or a pool or a spring. And it would be all built around this. And there would be gardens and, and vineyards and all of this. And these houses and these apartments being built on this house it would just grow larger and larger as the sons had more and more children and their families. And it's the picture. You can see these. They're archaeological ruins, historical ruins of houses like this. This is what Jesus is referring to. And he's saying, my father, the owner and master of the entire universe, the creator of everything that there is, his house has many rooms. And Jesus goes further and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm building rooms for you to live in, in this big house that my father has. The first thing I want you to understand, according to what Jesus is saying here, the first thing that we need to understand that when we think about home in heaven with the Lord, it's the father's house. And we get to live with him in glory. Now, the thing that's interesting about heaven according to the book of Revelation and other passages of Scripture, we think about heaven as being something far away, something that's kind of ethereal, cloudy, you know, maybe super spiritual, maybe even a little ghostly. You know, it's just this spiritual thing. And yet what, the, what Revelation teaches and other passages is that it's actually the merger of earth and heaven. In Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22, it says, John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the old earth and the old heavens disappeared. 
He sees this resurrected heaven and this resurrected earth. And he sees a city coming down out of heaven to earth, this brand new resurrected earth. And it's glorious and it's beautiful and he doesn't know how else to describe it other than a bride dressed for her wedding day. That's how glorious and how beautiful and majestic and wonderful it really is as he thinks about the city of God coming and now being on earth. And the point that he's saying, the thing that's most important in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is it describes our home in heaven, as it describes what the Father's house is like, is that God is living there permanently. And people are living there too. And God and people live together. It sounds an awful like, lot like the very beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden where God came and walked in the garden with Adam and Eve every day to talk together, to walk together, to learn, to grow, to be together. Yes, Adam and Eve probably enjoyed being with each other very, very much. But it was even better because God was present as well. Their very creator was personally with them. And all that was undone by human sin and rebellion being expelled and kicked out of the Garden of Eden and separated from God because of our sin, the story of Scripture goes from that garden and that expulsion and shows how Christ came and gave his life, how he became homeless for us on earth. The foxes have a hole to live in. Birds have a nest to sleep in. But the Son of Man, Jesus said, referring to himself, he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He didn't have a house while he lived on earth. He didn't live the American dream of owning a home. He had no home here on earth because he was secure in the Father's love and he was preparing a home for us to live with him. And how did he prepare it? He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. He made it possible for that sin to be forgiven and that rebellion to be healed and now we can be reconciled to God and brought into his presence. And so that's the hope that we have, this merger of heaven and earth. Some people say, when I die, I'm going to heaven. You really want to throw them a curve? Say this. Just think about it. Some of you are going to, I'm going to ruffle your feathers. When somebody says, what's going to happen to you after you die? Instead of saying, I'm going to heaven, he says, I'm going to earth, the new earth, the resurrected earth. That's where I'm going. Because that's the truth. When you and I talk about going to heaven when we die, we're not going off to the clouds and the sky. We're coming back to this earth that's been resurrected and glorified by the beauty and power of Almighty God, and he will live here present with us. And you see the description of the new Jerusalem, and you see the you know, perfect ecology, perfect environment, no more earthquakes, no more flooding, no more tornadoes and typhoons, no disease, no death, no violence, no terrorism, no war. When you and I think about the beauty and glory of all the things that we see on earth, I, I thought this week on Instagram, people were posting pictures of beautiful sunrises and lovely sunsets. It's that time of year where we see those things and the beauty of the flowers and the beautiful streams and all of these things that we see at the ocean and places like that. And we go, oh, that is so beautiful. You take that and magnify it thousands of times. And take away all the violence and destruction that's part of this world, the chaos and curse of this world. You take all that away and you take all the beauty and joy that we have in this life now. And that's heaven. That's the presence of God in our Father's house. That's what we have waiting for us. 
So it's, it's not only our Father's house, Jesus says, my Father's house, but it's this fabulous estate as well. And that's what he means when he says there's all these beautiful many rooms that are being added to and added to and added to this home. In Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, we see that, that the, the, the future home of the people of God with Almighty God, we see that it's a garden, we see that it's a city, and we see that it's a temple. And those three concepts describe what heaven is like, what the afterlife, the home that we have with God. It's like a garden with all its vitality and life growing, constantly thriving, nourishing, refreshing, energizing. When you've been busy at your desk working your job or on the assembly line at work or whatever it is that you've been doing, you've been under a lot of stress, and you take a ride out in the country, you go for a hike, you go to the ocean, you sit by the beach, and it just, it's like you just decompress. All the stress just goes away. Nature has a way of just relieving us and helping us to relax and refreshing us and strengthening us. That's what the Garden of Eden was like, and that's what the Garden of the New Jerusalem in the Holy City in the New Heavens and New Earth is like as well. The tree of life grows 12 months of the year, and it has fruits for the healing of the nations. We'll live forever with that life that always satisfies. But it says that it's also a city. And I know we think about cities as being crowded and noisy and dirty and polluted and too much chaos and too much going on. And it's kind of frightening a little bit for a lot of us country folk. And, and yet cities are wonderful. Cities are majestic. Cities are beautiful. Cities are like the, the apex of human design and development in many ways. Yes, there are things about them that are corrupt and bad and dangerous. But if you've ever gone to Central Park in New York City or you've ever looked and stared at a large skyscraper or you've seen a beautiful art installation somewhere on a riverfront and there's the parks and the city and the development and the industry and you see all of that and there's something inspiring about our cities. Those alabaster city gleam, as the song says. There's a beauty there. We'll take all the violence and all the destruction and all the chaos and all the selfishness and all the crowdedness and you remove that and you take the goodness and beauty of the cities and that's what heaven's like. That's the beautiful estate, the fabulous estate that Jesus is preparing for us. A place of work that's good and constructive and beneficial. Something that's satisfying. Christopher Hitchens was a noted atheist who passed away back in 2012, and he thought that heaven was going to be so boring, and once you got to heaven, you were trapped and you couldn't get out of it, and you would be sitting there twiddling your thumbs for eternity, and that sounds like the most boring thing that you could possibly imagine. He said it's like a spiritual North Korea. You're trapped, you can't get out, and there's nothing to do. That's what heaven's like, and if that's the Christian view of heaven, I don't want anything to do with it. And of course, he had erected a straw man was attacking Christianity for something that Christianity doesn't teach. Because the Bible makes it clear that heaven is something that's beautiful and organic and lovely and refreshing, and something where we work and we enjoy it and we're fulfilled and we create There'll be challenges and excitement that comes from tackling big problems. When we see the immensity of the universe, why is it so big? I can't help but think that there's work to do with it. And we've got a lot to do in the presence of God. But heaven is also called a temple. 
Because as God comes down and heaven and earth merge in the new heavens and the new earth and new Jerusalem, the city, the garden is described like a temple because there is no temple there. The whole city is a temple because God dwells there and his people worship him and honor him and work with him and bring him glory as they work and worship. It's our place. It's where we belong in the presence of God. It's our Father's house. It's a fabulous estate where we will live with him for all eternity and there will be zero boredom and there will be maximum joy and creativity and fulfillment. Do you like to paint? Do you like to work with wood? Do you like to restore cars? Do you like to build with clay? Sculpt? Sew? Cook? Those are things that we'll be doing. I don't know, you know where the gardeners will be and where the auto mechanics will be in heaven. I don't know about that. But the same creative, energetic creativity that we exert in this world today is an appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre of the main course in eternity where we will use the gifts and talents and opportunities that God gives us. All of this is involved when Jesus says, I am preparing a home for you in my Father's house. It's my Father's house will be with him forever, never to be separated from him. It's a house that's fabulous in its size and immensity and beauty and possibilities and opportunities. It's our home in heaven waiting for us. But on top of that, what Jesus is trying to say in this passage is it is a family reunion, not just our father's house and not just a fabulous estate or house to live in, palace to live in. It is a family reunion that will beat every other family reunion that has ever been. You know what it's been like when you're, you were far away from home, maybe when you were in the service, those of you that are veterans, or when you went on that missions trip and it was very challenging and you got sick and you couldn't wait to get back home. Or maybe you've just been away at college or, or your children were away at summer camp and they came home and you couldn't wait for them to come. Maybe it's even the feeling at the end of the day where the children are just waiting for dad or mom to come home or you're waiting for your spouse to come home. That's that reunion. There's a beauty about that. There's a joy about that of just being together. And Jesus is saying that this is my father's house and I am going there to prepare a room for you and I and my father are together forever. And guess what? We're waiting for you. We're waiting for you to come home and I'm going to come one day myself and escort you home. The disciples were probably thinking, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. What good is it to believe in Jesus if he's about to die? And the point that Jesus is making is, I am going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back to take you home. I'm going to bring you home to be with me forever and nothing will ever exclude you from my family and from my home. I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. Jesus is going to bring his people home and they will be with him forever. Now that's the joy. That's the promise that you and I can be with 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit for all eternity. And not only with them, but with all the people of God, the family of God, to be together, a reunion to beat every other reunion. A reunion that will make every other reunion look like it was just a work meeting and not a party. It's a party that will never end. The joy and the celebration of being with God, our creator, for all eternity. This is the promise that we have. Now, I'm so thankful for Thomas, the disciple, who is later called Doubting Thomas in church history because he's the one who doubted that Jesus really had risen from the dead. And here Thomas asks another very powerful, important question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? He's like asking for a roadmap or, Jesus, can you leave us your GPS, please? I don't know how to get to where you're going. We don't even know where you're going. And on top of that, we don't even know how to get there. If we don't know the address, we don't know the route. We don't know the way to get there if we don't know the address. So show us the address. Tell us where you're going. And the thing that I find is amazing, and this should encourage you and I when we ask our questions of God and we don't know what's going on, Jesus doesn't berate him. Jesus doesn't make fun of him. Jesus doesn't belittle him in any way. He recognizes that Thomas is asking a very serious, humble, and important question. And Jesus loves Thomas, and he loves you, and he loves the questions that you and I ask as well. And so what he says is simply this. You know where I'm going. Thomas says, we don't know how, and how can we get there? And he answers the question this way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making three big claims there. Do you see them? They're, they're pretty obvious. He says, I'm not a way, I'm the way. He doesn't say, I'm a truth, I'm the truth. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm a life, I am the life. He's making it a very exclusive claim. I'm the way, the truth, the life par excellence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There really is none other. If you want to know the truth, you need to listen to me and trust me. I will show you reality. There's no fake news with me. There's no lies and distortions with me. There's no exaggeration with me. There's the truth. If you want to know life and experience life the fullest, you need me. You need to rely on me and trust me and have me. And if you have me, you have life. We'll unpack that further in another message down the road. But you'll have the life. You'll never experience death because I am the resurrection and life. I am the life. If you have me, you have life. But if you want to know the way to God, if you want to know the way that I'm going, it isn't a route, a route that you take, a road that you follow, a path that you walk. It's me. I am the way. I will show you where to go. I will convey you there. But you need to trust me because I myself am the way. Trust me, I'll take you where you need to go. Follow me, I'll lead you there. Believe in me, I'll take you there. I am the way. There seem to be so many other routes in this life, so many other ways, and you'll hear Oprah and you'll hear all the different religious teachers and they will say, you know, that every, all the religions are the same. They're all going in the same direction. They all lead to the same place. The trouble is they don't all lead to the same place because they're also very different. 
They have many different views that are contradictory about who God is and what happens after death and what you need to do to live a life that honors God. They're contradictory things. One religion says you need to kill the people who are infidels. And others say you need to love your enemies. And so they are contradictory. They can't be going the same place. And the attributes and characteristics of the gods and goddesses that these different religions follow, they're very different. They're very contradictory. And so we can't say all roads lead to God because they don't. And when Jesus says no one comes to the Father except through me, that does sound very arrogant. Unless it's true. And that's the point. It is. And yes, there have been times where Christians have had a very arrogant attitude and be belittled and berated people who didn't believe what they believed. They've made fun of followers of other religions. They weren't respectful and, and able to listen or enter into a dialogue with them about how to know God and follow him. So yes, sometimes Christians, sometimes the followers of Jesus have acted very foolish and been very stupid and portrayed themselves as very arrogant. But Jesus was never arrogant. At this very same meal where he's talking to his disciples about heaven and about the afterlife and about home with God and that he's the only way, just earlier in the evening, what did he do? He washed the feet of the disciples. Is that arrogant? No. That was humble servants, service. He's about to go to the cross and die as a sacrifice for my sins and your sins. Is that arrogant that he would do that? No, that's tremendous sacrifice and humility that he would die to rescue us. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is humbly serving the people who will trust in him. He's giving his life for them, serving them. No, it's not. He's not arrogant in saying this. He's saying this because it's true. He's the only one who died and then rose from the dead on his own. He was resurrected. Muhammad is still dead. Moses is still dead. The Buddhas died. Krishna, all the others. In every other religion, the founders are still dead. But Christ raised from the dead. Every promise he's made has come true. Every prediction about him came true. And because of his faithfulness proven by his resurrection... And when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's telling us he is the only way. Now, it's a reminder to us that as we talk to others, we need to do this humbly, not as superior people, not as a know-it-all, not as I've got the truth and you don't, na 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 It's not like that at all. It's like saying, you know what, I don't deserve to go to heaven, but Jesus made it possible for me to go there. And you don't deserve to go to heaven either. But Jesus made it possible for you to do that because he gave his life humbly as a servant. And he rose from the dead for you. You can trust him. The thing I find astounding is I just reflect on this passage and meditate on it. Jesus says at the very beginning, you've got to believe in me Start believing in me. Keep on believing in me. And he's emphatic there. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Emphatically, he says that. We can believe in him. Because he is our Savior who chose to become homeless on our, part, on our, on our behalf. 
He became homeless for us, coming into this world, suffering as he did, dying as he did, and then rising from the dead to provide a home for us with him in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. This is your future, child of God. This is your future. Has nothing to do with your retirement account has nothing to do with the status of our economy or political stability or instability. This is secure and stable because Christ has built this home for us in heaven with him. When I reflect on the resurrection, that these bodies will be resurrected and glorified and earth will be resurrected and glorified, I can't wait to be there. For all the joyful things that you and I go through in this life, heaven will be so much more and even better. And that's the home that we have with him. And because of that truth, because that's the promise that we can trust Christ to bring about, then you and I can live without the anxiety and stress and fear of this life. We can keep on trusting him. And he will bring the peace and confidence and courage that we need to serve him and weather any storm that may come in this life. Some people say that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Well, this passage is saying you need to be so heavenly minded, you'll be a world of good in this life if you remember you've got your home waiting for you. You can endure, you can press on, you can persevere. And you can do it with courage, knowing that Jesus is coming back to take you and all his children home to be with him forever. That's our home. That's good news. Let me pray with you. Father, we give you thanks this day for the joy and privilege of being in your presence. And I thank you that you've made it possible for us to have a home in heaven with you. Thank you, Jesus, that even now you're preparing it for us. Thank you that you did all the hard part of dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. And even now you pray for us and you're constructing this home so that we might live with you. And I pray that this hope of home, this blessing of belonging, that we will never forget that. But that we would put our trust in you and be anchored and secure in you. Thank you for coming back one day soon to bring us all home. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to trust in you day by day. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So after this song, I'll be up front here. And if you would like to ask any questions about what it means to trust in Christ and to believe in him, to be sure that you're a member of God's family, because it's only God's family that go home to be with him. You can trust in him and be sure sins have been forgiven, that you've been reconciled to God. I'd be glad to talk with you and pray with you about that as well. Thank you for being here today.